We're going to read the Bible now, so it'd be great to open up your Bibles uh, to Titus chapter 2, 1 to 15, uh, and then Greg's going to unpack God's Word for us. So Titus 2, chapter 1, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Hey, everyone. How do you get people to do the right thing, especially when they really don't want to. It's a question as old as relationships, isn't it? It's a question the world has been wrestling with in the last few weeks as we've watched Russia invade Ukraine. Because no one wants Russia to do this. It's causing untold human misery. And we've tried all sorts of things that haven't worked. We've tried diplomacy and it hasn't worked. We've tried economic sanctions and cultural sanctions and nothing's worked. A friend of mine kind of expressed our sense of futility and frustration on Facebook. He wrote, Russia stripped of the Champions League final. That'll put an end to their silly buggers. And it sounds like he's just being cynical and glib, doesn't it? But really, he's expressing this sense of what, what can we do? Everything we do just feels so ineffective and futile. How do you get people to do the right thing? But it's not just world politics. How do you get anyone to do the right thing? A friend of mine is a lifeguard at a pool and he was telling me about a coworker who literally just sits there and watches everyone else work. And he said to me, Greg, I've never actually seen anyone who can sit still for eight whole hours in a row just watching other people work. And my friend has tried everything. He's tried shaming him. He's tried making jokes about it, he's tried threats, he's tried yelling and nothing's worked. How do you get people to do the right thing? How do we raise our children to do the right thing? 
I mean, we have our old standbys, the, the carrot and the stick, reward and punishment. But of course, those things really only work when your eye's on them, isn't it? How do we raise kids with hearts that want to do the right thing? What kind of church do we want to be? Because churches wrestle with this too, don't they? People's lives are messy. We all struggle to obey God. What kind of church do we want to be? A church that uses punishment and rules and shame? How do we get ourselves to do the right thing? In that moment of temptation, when I'm not really sure that I want to obey God, how do I coach my heart so that I obey God joyfully and not miserably? and grudgingly. How do you get people to do the right thing? Well, this is something that the world seems to have no answer to at all, but today we're going to see the secret. How to really shape human behaviour and human hearts and human lives. See, Titus chapter 2 is all about how people should live, how Christians should live. And there are loads of commands in here. There's Paul talks to older men in verse two. He talks to older women in verse three, and then young women in verse four, and then young men in verse six, even slaves down in verse nine. This passage is all about Christians doing the right thing, living as God wants them to. But we're going to see Paul doesn't motivate us with rules or shame or carrot or stick. Now, Paul motivates us with grace. God's undeserved, magnificent love. That is how you get people to change. And so before we work through any of the commands, let's explore grace for a little while. Look what Paul says in verse 11, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For... The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what's good. Now, this is actually the most important part of Titus 2. This is the great because behind every command. It's what motivates us. And what motivates us is God's grace. See verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. The heart of Christianity is not rules. It's not the carrot of heaven, do good and you'll go to heaven, or the stick of hell, if you're a bad person, you'll go to hell. No, the great heart of Christianity is God's generosity, his kindness. That's what grace is. It's mercy, generosity, kindness to people who deserve the exact opposite. See, the world pictures God as a tyrant who's never happy. God's a miserable, stingy, hate-filled, grumpy old man. But if you've ever read the Bible, that's not the God of the Bible, is it? No, the God of the Bible creates a beautiful world and then gives it to us for nothing. And he blesses us for no other reason than that he loves to bless. And the God of the Bible calls Abraham and blesses Abraham and gives him children who'll become a great nation 
not because Abraham deserves it. He doesn't. No, it's just because God delights to be so generous. And God chooses Israel, not because they're the biggest nation or the best nation, just because he loves them. See, all the way through the Bible, God is a God of grace. We don't work our way to him. We respond to him being kind to us. He's generous and forgiving and merciful. And yet here in verse 11, Paul seems to have one particular moment of grace in mind, doesn't he? Because look in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Paul, Paul has one particular moment in mind when God's grace appeared. And that word appeared, it's a spectacular word. Uh, think ripping the sheet off and revealing something. Or think someone bounding onto the stage. Appearing is a momentous word. God's grace has, has burst into view. It's appeared and it offers salvation to all people. That's the grace that Paul's talking about here. It's God's great saving grace, heaven. And when you unpack these verses, God's great saving grace that has appeared really is about three big things. Three big things that, that capture this grace. The first one is we've been rescued and washed. So have a look in verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. And here it is, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. God's grace there in verse 14 is that he's redeemed us and he's purified us from all wickedness. In other words, he's rescued us and he's washed us. You see, God paints a picture of you and I that to be honest, isn't very flattering. Do you have a favorite photo of yourself? I don't really, to be honest. I, I've had the same Facebook cover photo of myself for about the last five or six years now, and really only because I like the photo of my son, Tom. But we generally like photos that show us to our best advantage, don't we? My best angle, the best lighting, add a filter or two to make the flattering a little bit more, picture a little bit more flattering. Well, how's this for a picture of you? God says that we are all filthy slaves. We're all filthy slaves. In verse 14 there, we're slaves to wickedness. Because inside each and every one of us is a nature that's drawn to wickedness. Now, that's not to say that we're horrible people all the time. No, most of us manage to be pretty sociable most of the time. What it is saying is that deep down inside us, there is something that is drawn to things like selfishness and to greed and jealousy and hatred. We're drawn to wickedness. That's why it's so hard to change people. 
That's why we try things like rules and threats and shaming and punishment and carrot and stick, but things like that never work because the problem is actually inside me. It's inside my nature. I am a slave to wickedness. And like every slave, I'm also dirty because our wickedness left a stain on us before God. Every act of wickedness left its mark on us. Every act of sexual immorality, every word of gossip, every thought of envy, every transaction of greed left a stain on our soul. And look, this is hard to hear, isn't it? Because it's certainly not a very flattering picture. But every single human being is a slave to wickedness and we're marked by wickedness. But the great truth of this passage is that God's grace has appeared. Jesus has appeared. And look in verse 14, he gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us. He died for us. And on that cross, my dirt was transferred to Jesus. The guilt the shame, the punishment of everything I've ever done was transferred onto Jesus. He has washed me completely. And more than that, he has set me free. Christians are actually new people. I'm no longer a slave to wickedness anymore. No, now I've got Jesus' Holy Spirit in me and so I can change. I have changed and I am changing. Do you see what God's grace is? It's salvation, it's rescue, it's washing. And it's not because I deserve it. It's not because I'm a good person. It's just God's grace. So that's the first thing, God's grace is. It's rescue and it's washing. But of course, the second thing is, now I get to belong to Jesus. So take another look in verse 14. He says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to rescue, redeem us from all wickedness and to purify, wash for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. Part of God's grace is now we get to be Jesus' people. In fact, now we get to be Jesus' possession. Because the phrase Paul literally uses there is, are people of his own possession. Christians are actually Jesus' possession. And the idea comes from the Old Testament. When God rescued Israel from Egypt, he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God said to Israel that they were going to be his treasured possession. They used to be the possession of Egypt. They used to be slaves in Egypt. But God's rescued them from there and he's brought them to himself. And even though God owns the whole world, Israel is God's treasured possession. Now imagine hearing that. See, at one level, the idea that I could ever be someone else's possession really isn't very attractive to us. Is I don't want to be anyone's possession. But when you stop and think about it, to be God's treasured possession, to be the thing that God treasures, delights in out of all the earth, to be his pride and joy, 
Well, that really is something, isn't it? That's what God said to Israel. That's what Jesus says to us. If you are a Christian, the great grace of God is that now you have become Jesus' treasured possession. You're no longer a slave to wickedness. Now you belong to Jesus, the one who owns the whole universe. And he loves you and he treasures you. And it's not because you're so valuable. Now, remember, we were dirty slaves, but God's grace has rescued us and washed us and made us Jesus' treasured possession. The third thing about our grace is our future hope. Because look again in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great, appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus hasn't just appeared once. Someday soon he'll appear again. And when he does, he'll appear in glory and he will take us home to heaven and he will wipe away every tear and our sin will be gone for good. And no matter how hard life is here, no matter how painful it is, no matter how much we struggle with sin, that's our hope. One day Jesus is going to save us fully. Do you see what God's great grace for you is if you're a Christian? He's rescued you and washed you from wickedness. And now he's made you Jesus' treasured, beloved possession. And when he comes back, you will spend an eternity with him. And we don't deserve any of it. It's all because of kindness. And yet this, this is how people really change. This is what drives Christians' lives. You see, look what Paul says in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. Here is how people and lives can be changed. It's not with rules and it's not with threat and shame. It's with the grace of God. Paul says it teaches us. And that word teach, it's more than teach academically. It's the word for raising a child. It's about forming and shaping and developing and motivating. You see, God's grace actually forms and shapes and develops and motivates us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Because the fact is, I'm not a slave to them anymore. They don't own me anymore. Jesus owns me now. He's rescued me and washed me from my old life and he's taking me to heaven. And so why would I live for ungodliness and worldly passions now? They're my past, not my present and my future. I have something better now. Now in verse 11, I get to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life while I wait for Jesus. Now in verse 14, I'm Jesus person, eager to do what's good. 
You see, this is how you get people to change. Christians have the very best motivation for how we live. We don't live the lives we live because we're afraid of hell. And we don't live the lives we live because we're trying to earn heaven. We live the way we do because of grace. I've already been rescued and washed of sin. Why live in it anymore? I'm the treasured possession of Jesus. Why live as the possession of sin? I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus. Why waste my time with sin now? Look, when you realise that, isn't this what we want our lives and our churches to be characterised? Isn't this how we want to raise our kids? See, it's so easy in church to create a culture where we all obey God out of fear. Fear of what other people will think of us. Fear of what other people will say to us and say about us. Fear of God punishing us. And it's so easy in church to create a culture that focuses on rules. You have to come to church. You have to serve. You have to give. You have to tell people about Jesus. And church becomes a culture of heavy-handed rebuke. Do this. Do the right thing or you'll be punished. Stop doing that or you'll go to hell. We don't want to be that kind of church, do we? No, we want to be a church that just rejoices in and bathes in grace. When someone's sinning, we want to go to them and say, God's grace means you've been freed from this and you've been washed of this. You don't have to do that anymore. No, you get to live for Jesus. You get to belong to Jesus and you get to serve Jesus and you get to please him, the one who loves you enough to rescue you. That's the kind of church we want to be. It's how we want to raise our kids, isn't it? Not with the constant fear that if they do the wrong thing, they'll fail us or fail God. But with the security of knowing that God loved them even when they were wicked. And he still loves them, even though they sometimes do wicked things. And that they're the treasured possession of Jesus. He adores them and he wants good things for them. Righteousness, self-control, godliness. And so we want our children to, to learn to obey Jesus out of the joy of grace. It's what we want to say in our own hearts, isn't it? When I'm tempted by sin or when I failed in sin, I want to say to my heart, Greg, you are God's beloved treasured possession. He's rescued you and washed you by grace. And he has an eternity of grace prepared for you. You will miss out on nothing by resisting sin. See, that's how you change people. You change people with the wonderful, magnificent grace of God. And so with that, let's turn to the commands that Paul gives in this chapter. Paul talks to five groups. We're not actually going to get to slaves because of time. But look what Paul calls older men to be in verse 2. He says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. 
when you read that, the older man's life really is marked by a steady reliability, isn't it? Notice the words Paul uses, temperate, which means sober or sober-minded, respectable, worthy of respect, self-controlled. Self-controlled is the opposite of worldly passions in verse 12. That is, God's grace teaches us not to just grab hold of every passion that we feel, but to live as God's rescued person. Live like someone who's been saved from wickedness. That's self-control. And all those words for the old man really are about steady, reliable trustworthiness, aren't they? They're very grown-up words. In fact, let's be honest, they're kind of boring words, aren't they? The world's really confusing when it comes to manhood nowadays. Are you meant to be strong as a man? Are you meant to be vulnerable? Are you meant to be sensitive? It's all changed so much. But one thing that hasn't changed is that men still want to be boys. We long for the day when we had no responsibilities, right? And life was just all about fun. And we, get, we grow tired of things like responsibility and commitment and turning up and self-control. And so you see ads for things like BCF, boating, camping, fishing, and it's all about BCF and fun. That's what life should be, fun. And you see ads for Woody and Cola and beer and, and the picture is the guy who is just basically still a big kid. And that's the guy that most guys, old or young, really long to be, isn't it? And you know, in an ad, it's kind of fun. In real life, it's a blatant disaster. I see it in mates my age who are walking out on marriages of 30 years because they're looking for fun. They're looking for an adventure. They're looking for an affair. They're looking for a change. And the mates I know who've done this, I'll be honest, they're having the time of their lives. <laughs> they look like they're, they're 21 again. But in their wake, is human wreckage. Their families are devastated because of their childishness. Their wives and their kids are shattered by their childishness. Men, God wants something better for you than to be the man-child. In his grace, he has rescued you from that kind of selfishness. You get to be a better man than that. You get to be self-controlled. You get to be temperate. You get to be solid and reliable. You get to be the rock that other people depend on and build their lives around. And that is not a sacrifice. It's not a burden. It's the grace of God. So aim to be that kind of man. Build those habits of safe reliable, steadfast steadiness. Aspire to be the man that other people can rely on. And you know, in a way, the older woman is kind of the same. So take a look in verse three. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what's good. 
See, in a way, the older woman is similar to the older man. There's something very stable about her. She's reverent, which means serious about living for God. There's a seriousness to her faith. And she's not someone who acts out with alcohol. She's not someone who creates havoc around her with slander. There's a steady, reliable devotion to God in the older woman here. I don't think Paul mentions slander and alcohol because women are more prone to them than men. Actually, the statistics suggest that men are more likely to be alcoholics than women generally. And in fact, in chapter one, Paul said that elders weren't to be given to drunkenness. Slander and drunkenness seem to be pretty universal problems. But God's plan for older women is that they get to be the stable, steady, serious-minded models for younger women. So see there at the end of verse 3, they're to teach what is good and then they can urge the younger women. You see, as you become an older woman, God's plan for you is that you become the model and the teacher of younger women. And it's funny, if... If men run from this kind of responsibility, often women shrink from it. Men want to stay boys, but as I've talked to older women in and around our church and and the women on our staff team, one of the things that they often tell me is that fantastic, godly, reverent older women will often shrink from taking on the role of teacher or mentoring younger women because you feel like you have nothing to offer. You feel like you're not the expert. You're still working out how to be a godly older woman yourself. I mean, what have I got to offer someone who's younger than me? I don't even know what I'm doing myself. And so lots of women actually shrink back from leading and continue to look for someone to lead them. But again, this is God's grace for you. As you get older, you get to become that steady, reliable, not perfect, but that steady, reliable, reverent older woman for someone else. It might be your daughters, maybe your daughters-in-law, it might be the women in your growth group. It's certainly the young women younger than you in church. God's grace to you is that you get to teach them to say no to ungodliness and to live for Jesus. Which leads us to the next group, to younger women. And so look in verse 4. Then the older women can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And look, some of those words just leap off the page at us, don't they? For all the wrong reasons. Love their husbands and children. Busy at home, subject to their husbands. All of that actually sounds like the oppression of women that our culture is finally getting rid of. Is Paul saying that every young woman has to be married? Is Paul saying that women shouldn't work, they have to stay at home? Is Paul saying that women should be slaves to their husbands? No, I actually don't think he's saying any of those things. In the first century, most young women were married. And in fact, most young men were married too. Most people married before they turned the age of 18. And so Paul's not saying what young women have to do. He's actually just dealing with the reality that most of the young women in Crete were likely to be married. His emphasis isn't on the children and the husband. His emphasis is on love. Teach young women to love. Whether you have a husband and children or not, Aim to be someone who is loving, not selfish. 
And the emphasis in busy at home isn't so much as the home part, but the busy part. I don't think Paul's saying, I don't think God is saying here that women aren't allowed to have a job. Actually, that's just reading a modern day issue back into the Bible. You see, in the first century, pretty much every woman worked at home and every man worked at home because that's where the work was. Leaving your home to go off to work, that came in with the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. Before that, you grew crops at home. If you had a store, a shop, it was your home. And so Paul's not saying anything here about women not being able to have jobs and having to stay at home. No, it's great if a Christian woman works. My wife Emma's a psychologist and she's great at it and she does lots of good. It's great if women work. And of course, the opposite's true as well. If you're a wife and a mum and you don't do paid work, well, it's great too. See, somehow we've ended up in a culture that says to women, unless you have a paid job, well, somehow your life is less worthwhile. You're not earning money and so your life is less meaningful. You're just a mum. But whoever said that getting paid was the measure of worth. No, the measure of a worthwhile life is whether or not you love, whether you do good. In verse 12, it's whether or not you live a self-controlled, upright and godly life. If you decide to stay at home as a mum and raise your kids, as a mum or dad, never let anyone look down on you. Paul's emphasis isn't on the at-home bit, it's on the busy at-home bit. He's saying... Tell people to be busy, to work honestly, which is something he says as much to men as to women. In 2 Thessalonians, God through Paul says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And Paul actually says that to the whole church, to men and women. But the next thing he says, the next thing God says to young women is that they are to be subject to their husbands. See verse four, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, to be subject to someone is just to be under the care and the authority of someone. And you know, it's actually something that every single Christian does. So if you've got a Bible, just turn over a page to Titus chapter three, verse one, where God says, remind the people to be subject to rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. You see, every single Christian subjects themselves or submits to and obeys the rules and authorities, like our government. In Hebrews, we're all called to submit to our church leaders because they watch over us and they give an account for us. In fact, even Jesus obeyed his parents in Luke chapter two. And the word there in Luke chapter two is the same as here in Titus, Jesus was subject to his parents, which tells you that being subject to someone doesn't mean that you're worth less than them. Jesus was worth infinitely more than his parents were. He was his parents' God and their king. And yet he submitted to them. 
Submission is really just about who's going to take the lead and who's going to take responsibility here. It's about placing yourself under someone else's care and responsibility. And in fact, in almost every single relationship we ever have in life, someone will act as the leader who acts in care and responsibility from work to church, to sport, to play, to family. And what Paul's saying here is, wives, place yourself under the care and the authority of your husband. He is the one who takes the lead in care and responsibility. Let him do that. Encourage him to become that trustworthy, reliable, stable, older man that God talked about in verse 2. And young men, we can make it easier for our sisters by being worth following. So look what Paul says. God says through Paul in verse 6, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what's good in your teaching. Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, Titus is one of these young men. And so here's where the whole letter, the whole chapter gets very personal for him. And I want you to notice, notice how young men really are to look a lot like the older men, but in training. Young men are to be self-controlled as well. And young men are meant to show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech. Really, Paul's saying, if you're a young man, be an older man in training. But it is interesting that God focuses here on the young man's speech. Verse 7, in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Because... For young men, it's often our speech that gets us into trouble. What are the evil desires of youth? Sex? Drugs? Fast cars? No, Paul says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. You see, the evil desires of youth are actually the foolish and stupid arguments that especially young men like Timothy and Titus were likely to get into. As young men, we love to show everyone just how much we know. We love to make that smart, snide comment that gets a laugh. We love to beat people in arguments. We love to boast and make inappropriate jokes. And we love to bring people down with words. That's what it is to be a young man. But the godly younger man is, in self con- is self-controlled about what comes out of his mouth. He shows integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech, which doesn't mean that he never makes a joke, but he knows when to make a joke and he knows when to be serious. If you're a young man, now is the time to learn how to tame your tongue. Learn how to do good with your tongue instead of evil. Live as someone who Jesus has rescued from wickedness with your lips. Learn to be serious and sound in speech. Now, if I had time, 
we'd look at slaves, but I've run out of time. This is another incredibly challenging passage in Titus, isn't it? And you know, you might even be thinking, I don't like what this passage says to me. In fact, I hate what this passage says to me. And that's where we come back to where we started. How do we help people to do the right thing? The world's way is to threaten and make rules. God's way is grace. God has rescued you from wickedness and he's called you to be his treasured possession. And this passage represents God's grace to you. This passage represents what it means to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright and godly life in this present age. We need to trust that it's good. We need to trust that God's word to us and the way he wants us to live is actually grace. And you know, if we do that, we'll change the world. You see, in this passage, God says, by our lives, Christians can actually convince and change the world. So look in verse five, Paul says that young women love their husbands and children so that no one will malign the word of God. Or down in verse eight, he says, young men need to be godly so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they've got nothing bad to say about us. The false teachers in Crete are going to be shamed by Titus and these young men's life of integrity. Down in verse 10, he says, slaves need to be godly so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. You see, as Christians trust God's grace enough to obey Him, we'll convince the world. Laws won't. Rules won't. Shaming won't. But Christians who live as the people of God's grace will change the world. Let's pray that we will. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. Your grace has appeared. And it means rescue. And it means washing. It means we are your treasured possession. It means a hope of Jesus' glory. It means we're not the people we used to be. And it teaches us to say no to sin and to live for you. And this passage presents a life that's kind of challenging, really challenging. Whether we're old men or older women, young women, younger men, there's some challenging words for us here. We pray that we'll trust that they represent your grace that they represent the life that has been rescued from wickedness and washed of wickedness. That this is the life that's lived in obedience to you because it's the very best life. Please help us to trust that. Amen.